Um, and he taught me philosophy since I was 13. No, never ever won an argument against him. Although I came close this afternoon. Um, <laughs> um, he also supports the ontological argument. Um, so I think I thought it would be quite nice um, for you to have a go at um, Have a go at me. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so do you, do you want to start off? Do you want to kind of explain? Why? We're just going to have to do kind of a nice chat about that. Impromptu. Impromptu chat. Yes. What do you want to explain? Where do where we um, go from? Well, okay. Well, first of all, do you all... Do you all understand Van uh, Hagen's no-no? Do you want... Shall we start... Yeah, but not well. Shall I... Okay, shall we so, start so, so I do want to do the, the development yeah. from... The sort of modern development bit, this, yeah. this sort of bit here, yeah. and then I'll talk about the no-no and my response to the no-no. Okay, so um, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, after Descartes, said, it seems to me that Descartes is assuming, as a sort of hidden assumption of his ontological argument, that the concept of God is a consistent, internally consistent concept, a coherent non-self-contradictory concept and he needs to assume that in order for his argument to work and I think he's obviously right about that and later more modern versions of the argument sort of explicitly draw on that insight and on the distinction between contingent existence and necessary existence which is a distinction that is perhaps uh, drawn from thinking about various versions of the cosmological argument rather than the ontological, but it's a very useful distinction to sort of then import into the ontological argument because it gives you a way of sidestepping the whole debate about the criticism made by uh, Kant in particular about existence not being a predicate. Him, Him saying, you know, Descartes wants to say... Okay, it's not intrinsic to the idea of an island, however perfect that it exists, but it is intrinsic to the idea of God that he exists, um, just as it's intrinsic to the idea of a triangle that it has three sides. But it's not intrinsic to the concept of a triangle that there actually be any triangle anywhere in, in, in the world, as it were. And then Kant comes along and says, when you sort of, you're treating exists as if it's just another list on this list of properties that you can give to anything. So, you know, that the laptop is grey, it weighs one kilogram, it's got a battery life of three hours, and it exists. As if they, that was the same kind of thing to say. And Kant thinks that it's not... And it's in a sort of different separate category all of itself. And you therefore can't sort of define God into existence by just including exists among the list of properties that you would ascribe to God. Now, there's a whole debate about whether Kant is right or wrong about that. But you can sidestep that issue by saying, OK, even if just to say it exists, or full stop per se is not a predicate, it's not to say something genuinely informative about your concept of something, 
once you've made this distinction between necessary existence and contingent existence, it certainly does seem informative to be told that something exists necessarily rather than that it exists contingently. So necessary existence does seem to be a predicate, and that sidesteps the whole is not existence, just talking about existence without any further clarification isn't a predicate. So those, those two sort of insights then channel into the more modern formulations of the argument that boil down to saying, by definition, just because of the concept of the greatest possible being, um, God is the concept of a being who has all the perfections. And necessary existence would be a per- perfection, a genuine predicate. And so it's the concept of a being who would exist just as long as his existence is possible. Unlike you or me. I mean, my existence is possible, because here I am, but my non-existence is possible. I don't have to exist. Whereas God's the concept of a being who has the property of having to exist by necessity. So if, it's po- if it is possible that there's a God, if, if the concept of this being who has to exist by necessity is consistent and internally coherent then he would have to exist. He would exist. So premise one boils down to, if it's possible that God exists, then God exists. Premise two, it is possible that God exists. Conclusion, therefore God exists. Yeah? And I think the state of play is that even most sort of atheist philosophers of religion that you were taught to now would be prepared to grant that that's a logically valid argument. That conclusion really does follow from those two premises. And that premise number one, if it's possible God exists, then he does exist, necessarily, is just sort of true by definition. And all of the sort of the heated debate is going to be about premise two. Well, is it true that it's possible that God exists? What the atheist will have to be driven to say in order to escape the argument will basically be, oh, okay, I now see that what I have to say is it's impossible for God to exist. God, the concept of God must be incoherent in some way. Um, even if I can't actually point out what that incoherency is, I might say something like, well, you know, I'm pretty convinced there's no God, and that means that he must be impossible. And I'm prepared to, to say that in order to avoid uh, the conclusion. So this is when Van Invagen, however we pronounce him, uh, I think a very ingenious um, sort of point comes in, and it was a point that convinced me for, for some time that the, although I thought the ontological argument in its modern form was a valid argument that, that was actually sound, it was actually a good argument, but it was one that you couldn't use to convince someone to come to believe in God. Because what Invagen points out uh, is basically, well, why do you believe premise two? Obviously, if you already believe that God exists, you believe that it's a true premise. And so it's a logically valid argument with two true premises. So it's sound. But what if I don't already believe that God exists? Why should I believe premise two? rather than saying, oh, God must be impossible. 
Van Wegen basically says, well, kind of the, the naive thing to think might be to say something like, well, you ought to accept premise two because you always ought to give the benefit of the doubt to claims about things, the existence of things being possible. It kind of seems a very minimal thing to say, well, of course, it's possible that there's a such and such or a such and such. The big question is, well, is there a such and such? But then, then he says, well, but you can't make that move here. Because equally, I could suggest to you the concept of a being, uh, the concept of a being who knows that there's no God. Okay? And if it's possible that that being exists, then it's impossible that God exists. And if it's possible that God exists, then it's actually impossible that a no-no exists. They're mutually self-contradictory concepts. Okay? And if you're saying, well, you ought to extend the benefit of the doubt to all claims about the existence of things being possible, you've still got an impasse because you, have, you can't you know, you extend the benefit of the doubt to God and, and, and to the possibility that basically God's existence is not possible. Both of those are actually claims about existence. And they're kind of on a par, they're self-contradictory. You can't get past this impasse simply on the basis of saying, but we should give the benefit of the doubt to, because you have to extend the benefit of the doubt to both sides and they're equally opposed to each other. Um, so I thought for a long time on that basis, yeah, okay, that's a good point. The ontological argument is a sound argument, technically speaking, but it's a useless argument as far as trying to convince someone to come to believe in God. Because the only kind of reason to accept the crucial second premise is if you already believe that there is a God. So it, it's sort of no use as a lever to change someone's mind on the issue, which is really what we want arguments to do. <laughs> um, so we, uh, we probably pause there before talking about whether or not you can resolve that issue. But that's the sort of the developments that feed into the modern form and Van and Wegen's opposition to. When I was about your age, um, I may be slightly younger, um, but Peter told me he was a and I knew it was an underdog, and I kind of like underdogs, so I immediately started for it, and I thought, oh, well, I'm an idiot, sure there's a way around Fan agents and Pete, I remember going on long walks with Pete and saying, I thought Fan Vegan's wrong because of X and Y. Mm. And he's going, no, no, Fan Vegan's right, that's a logical argument fails. Spent a good couple of months, yeah. so yeah, yeah, okay, that was a logical argument fails. Year later, what's a logical argument works! So it was lovely that he changed his mind after convincing me that it didn't work. Um, Sorry. <laughs> Um, but do you get so? Are we we're familiar now with how Van Vegen's criticism works? The the no no is just as logically possible as yeah. perfect God. Yeah, you're going to need to write this in the exam. Yeah. Oh. 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 Both makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. I don't know why the whole benefit of the doubt thing really Yeah. Good. Could there be another another being which could know that the no no doesn't exist? Could it just go No no. Uh, he said if there is a no no, 
could there be another being that knows that there's no no-no? Most philosophers would include within their definition of what it is to know something that, that you can only know things that are true. Okay. The standard definition of it, knowledge is justified through true belief. So, um, now, obviously, that is contentious, but that's the yeah. standard. Um, I mean, we won't go That's the standard view, that I can't know something unless it is true. Um, okay. So if it's true that a no-no exists, then, it's, then it can't be the case that there's anyone who exists who knows that there's no no-no. Because anyone who believes there's no no-no would be wrong if it's true that there is a no-no. So are you saying, are you saying that there's, like, it's equally kind of... Like, the, the whole thing that, like... It is true that there is a no-no that knows that there's no God, and then it's true that that um, God is that God exists. Well, no, it's more to do with the possibility. It's, it's saying it's true that it's possible that a no-no exists, it's and it's true that it's possible that God exists are mutually contradictory claims, and is saying if you're only suggesting about why you should believe. The claim that favours God is along the lines of you should give the benefit of the doubt to, to claims about things being possible. That won't work because you'd also have to give the same benefit of the doubt to this truth claim that contradicts the, the, the second premise of the ontological argument. So there's a sort of impasse between these two that would have to be resolved on grounds other than some principle about giving the benefit of the doubt to existence claims or possibility claims. Yeah. Okay. Well, we do have a, di- a bit of a disagreement yeah. about how to present an available, um, which we only really got to last night when yeah, we were yeah. discussing your solutions. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think it works best in terms of possible worlds. Whereas you think actually possible worlds just confuses the issue. Yes. And I think you've just got acting on your side now, which is rather annoying. But, yeah. Yeah, I, I think talking about possible worlds, it might be a very useful philosophical tool mm. once you, you've grasped it. But I, I, I do think that it's potentially misleading, particularly if you're not used to talking in those terms, as it were. Because it, it's very sort of easy to slide from talking about such and such exists in a possible world to actually thinking of such and such as existing. Yeah. Um, now, you know, that's not a move that's legitimized by the talk about possible worlds, straightforwardly, but it, I, I think if you're not used to thinking, yeah, that, yeah. unless it's net, that's right, unless it's uh, crucially for the ontological, yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely, that move per se is not legitimised. Um, but I think if you're not used to thinking that those terms, it's just sort of, it seems to be a sort of long-handed way of talking about, of saying such and such is possible. To say such and such exists in a possible world just is to say such and such is possible. 
and it's a sort of long-hand, long-winded way of saying it. So why? So, so what you've got up on board there is basically planting this argument. Well, I think that actually well. is the solution to this, isn't it? Well, no, I, what I think. Or is it no, I think that will see Stephen Evans boiling it down. I'll give you what. It, um, Plantingas, it's in this uh, chapter here. That, that's his argument about the world and also about the stuff on the street about mobile logic. Wasn't this Plantingas' argument against Plantingas? Yes. Yes. Now, Plantingas' article was very interesting in terms of he actually spent the first half kind of defending. Uh, modern versions of yeah. the ontological argument against Kant and things like that, and saying yes, okay, Kant was completely wrong in terms yeah. of its necessary existence is a predicate. Yeah. But, then, but then he went into yeah, criticism. But here's another, a new problem to sort of yeah. yeah. So the way. Without without the sort of modal logic, which again, you can put Plantinga's argument has sort of five steps. It's um, he talks, he introduces these definitions about maximally great being, uh, and he says it's it's possible that a maximally great being exists. If it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in at least one possible world. That's sort of by definition what it is to say when you're translating into that philosophical terminology. If a maximally great being exists in one possible world, then it exists in every possible world because of the definition of maximal greatness. For if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world, since the actual world is obviously a possible world. Therefore, a maximally great being exists. Is that a yeah, well, this is where that crucial distinction between contingent and necessary comes in. If it's um, the definition includes it being a necessary existence, then you can make that that move. If it's contingent, then you can't make that move. Um, it's because you've said, okay, a, um, so a maximally great being is a being that by definition has every property, the having of which makes you greater or of more sort of ontological worth. Um, given a distinction between existing contingently, depending on stuff outside yourself, etc., not having to exist, possibly not existing. And existing necessarily, which form of existence seems to be greater? Well, most people say, well, sort of intuitively, the necessary existing kind. So if there, if there were to be a God, and we're not saying at this stage that there is, but if there were to be a God, he would be a, a being that had the property of necessary existence. Okay, this is just a matter of definitions at the moment. But if you then combine that with saying, well, of course... One of the implications of, of having necessary existence, logically, simply is that you exist if it's even possible that you exist. You're basically saying it's, it's impossible for you not to exist. To deny that such a being exists, you'd ha- you would have to hold that it's an incoherent, self-contradictory concept. I, you'd have to deny premise two, which is that it's possible that such a uh, great, greatest possible being exists. 
that it's not an incoherent concept. Um, and that matter of definition, together with that claim, claimed insight into sort of modal reality, as it were, does lead logically to the conclusion that, that, that there is a God and he exists necessarily. <laughs> um, Do you understand that? Yeah. yeah? Everyone else? Yeah. We kind of with it. Yeah. So necessary existence yeah. is that you cannot not exist. Yes. Yeah. It, if it's even possible that you exist, then you do. Um, that's, yeah. So, um, uh, an example would be uh, mathematics. Um, one plus one equals two. In mathematics, I got GCSE maths. <laughs> um, so one plus one equals two in maths. Um, that's true, not just in the actual, but in every possible world. It's not possible that this isn't true. It can't not be true. It can't be a possible world in which one plus one don't equal two. It's a fundamental law that it can't be shifted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, okay. Given a given realist view of maths and numbers, um, <laughs> so the numbers really do. Uh, Exist. Yeah. It's not hard. It's not hard. It's not hard. <laughs> okay, yes, uh, yes, yes, okay. Let's, let's say numbers exist um, in some sort of bizarre way. Um, then, then no matter what, one plus one equals two. Okay. Now, because it's a necessary truth, it can't be that it, it's any different. It's not like the law of gravity. The law of gravity would be different. Well, think of logical laws. Think of like the law of non-contradiction. Okay. You know that that might be a less controversial than the mathematical example. Yeah. However, the universe was physically. Um, it would still be true that, that mutually contradictory statements can't both be true. So you can't have, um, I don't know, uh, Steve is a girl and a boy. But okay, you can't have that. You can't have. Only a, only a. There is no possible universe in which there exists a circle that's square. Or tr- to use Descartes, there's no possible universe in which there's a triangle which has more than three sides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what the logical argument is saying is that just as um, it's necessarily true that there are no circle squares, which means in every possible world there are no circle squares. It's not a possible world. Which so that's necessary. Square. That's necessarily yeah. existent. So it's necessarily true. Now the ontological argument says that if God exists. He exists necessarily. So there's a possible world in which God exists necessarily. Now, just as with non-contradiction, necessary existence means it's not possible. And there's a world in which, necessary, in which non-contradiction is correct. Or there's a square circle. In the same way, if, necess- if God exists necessarily in one possible world, then by definition he must exist in one possible world. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. If it's possible, if you know, if premise two is, if is it's, true. If it's true. So basically, people deciding whether they believe 
comes to you know, being That's right. I mean, Vagan's point is about, well, how do you go about deciding whether you believe premise two? And he's saying you can't simply decide it by some sort of claim about, well, you should give the, you know, the, 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 the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say that he's not, because you always ought to give the benefit of the doubt to any metaphysical claim about what's... Yeah, he's saying you can't make that move. You've got, to, you've got to have some principled, independent reason that's also independent of the fact of whether or not you actually believe there is a God, as well, otherwise you can... If, if I say, well, I know premise two is true because I already know that God exists, then, I, then the argument becomes sort of question-begging, doesn't it? Because I, I'm assuming what it sets out to prove in order to get the argument to work. So I need some principled way of supporting premise two that doesn't assume doesn't just assume that God exists and which goes beyond this sort of making a benefit of the doubt on behalf of, of possibility claims move, which in Vegan is saying that might, you might naively think this is the way forward but it's not um, and in fact in Vegan himself sort of ended up saying it's not that I'm saying that the ontological argument is false I'm simply saying that I'm arguing you can't know that it's true or indeed that it's false. You just you have to be sort of agnostic about it. In and of it, it might be the case. It's just that we don't know. That's kind of where he leaves it. Um, and you go for you you argue against. Yes. Well, I, I then I then having come back to writing something else on this topic later, then thought to myself, well, okay, is it true that the only grounds for accepting premise two is this benefit of the doubt move is there any independent way of supporting the plausibility of premise two as being more plausibly true than its denial over against basically the possibility that it's false which is what the no-no is really talking about and I reckon there are sort of seven or eight um, different lines of argument that give some reason for, for accepting premise two as being true rather than not true. It was page 12. Which is, I think, yeah, they start being lifted on page 8, reasons to accept premise 2, on page 12 that goes through. And basically, I reckon, if, if, if only you think one of those lines of argument works, then you have some reason to say the ontological argument works. But what, what I'm very keen to say even then is... Even if it works, the ontological argument isn't a sort of knock-down argument for God and against atheism. That is the kind of way that Anselm and some other people have tried to sort of present it. Um, all that you're saying is, I think there's that both of the premises is logically valid, and both of the premises are, are more plausibly true than false. Okay, um, and you might have to be weighing that argument, which you say gives some reason for accepting the conclusion, against other arguments that give you maybe some reason for atheism. And sort of balancing these, these things up. They, um, you said Anselm, he puts a lot of weight in it in terms of yeah. this is basically his reason for being a Christian. Right? He was Archbishop of Canterbury, so it was a bit of a question. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that's his, basically his reason Mm. being a Christian. And he thinks that can convince anybody uh, who is an atheist to become 
a Christian, because unlike other arguments of the existence of God, the ontological argument doesn't, doesn't just establish some sort of distant mechanical being or something that just starts off the universe. It establishes basically the God of yeah. Judeo-Christian. Because you're a very rounded picture of what yeah. God is. Uh, but but Anselm based his faith on it, but Descartes, he's done something even more radical. If, if the ontological argument doesn't work, Anselm goes, oh well, you know, I lose my post to Canterbury uh, and I'm not pushing anymore. Descartes goes, well, I've just based my entire theory of knowledge, me knowing anything, on God's existence. If the ontological argument fails to him, he is screwed. He, he won't even know where the toilet is anymore. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so for Anselm, it's losing his faith, for Descartes, wetting himself. That's the kind of difference we're talking about here. But um, they would be able to convince people who don't have faith to become Christian. Um, no, I think with Descartes, think it would be convinced. I don't, I don't think he's really even. That's not sort of part of the project that he's setting out to do, really. He's not doing. Um, really not doing natural theology or apologetics he's, he's kind of he's setting out to solve this epistemological issue no, epistemology is theory of knowledge yeah and he's, he's bringing in God of a certain character to solve the problems with scepticism and us knowing things as a sort of guarantor of the reliability of our ways of, know, of believing things and knowing things um, and that's the role God is kind of playing in his philosophy at that stage, um, sort of levering him out, even at a more sort of generous rereading or reconstruction perhaps of Descartes' philosophy. You might say he's saying he can get to, well, whatever I could be wrong about, I know that at least I exist, but how do I know anything reliably about the physical world or even you know, that I have a body and so on? Because I could doubt that, or I could be being deceived about that by the famous evil demon sort of example. But the evil demon couldn't be deceiving me into thinking that I'm doubting things when I'm not. I know, you know, I just know I'm doubting, so I must exist. But how do I know about staplers and shoehorns and all of this stuff? Not that they'd invented the stapler back then, I don't think. Um, and then it's at that point that he needs to bring in God. He says, well, if there were a God who's good and created me in his image and so on, that would give you a good reason for thinking that I can reliably know stuff about the rest of the creation that comes from God. Because you know, sort of the way things work out there in, in the independent world, the way thing, I think about stuff in here, both come from the same self-consistent, rational, good source. That would sort of make sense of tying me into the world in a reliable way. But in order to argue that there is such a God, I can't, of course, use something like the design argument because the premises of that kind of argument would include making truth claims about the world out there so and how it works. Yeah. So I've got, I've got to find some way of bringing God into the picture a priori, just from the contents of my own consciousness. And that's why he then has to you know, bring in the, the, the ontological argument and the, the perfect being explanatory kind of argument. Now, the lesson finishes at 20 past, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yes, it does. Um, 
before we all run away, we've got like 25 seconds left. Very quickly, thank you, Pete. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure, thank you. Assignment.